A new guide from the Department of Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate is full of information for potential partners to take part in collaborative research and develop long-term partnership opportunities. To learn more, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Megan Mail, Director of Industry Partnerships in DHS's Office of Innovation and Collaboration. At the Department of Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate, the industry partnerships are very essential to how we do business. So we know that research and development doesn't just happen in a vacuum and it happens via collaborations with all sorts of partners. Um, We have partnerships with academia, national laboratories, other international government partners, as well as the private sector. And so our hope in developing the partnership guide was to really put all the information in one spot and make it easy for people to learn how to work with us. So we have information in there about partnership opportunities, the kind of vehicles we use, the types of partners we're looking for. And then the real meat in the back is a a list of our research development, test and evaluation priority areas. All right. So you, you, you put it out in front there for me, the meat of it. What are the evaluation areas that you are looking to focus on? Sure. So the guide includes a list of five uh, priority areas um, with a number of different programs and and projects underneath them. But at the very high level, the five areas are border border security, chemical, biological and explosive defense, uh, counterterrorism, cybersecurity and information analysis, and then capabilities for first responders. Gotcha. And what are the methods that you all use for engaging the industry side of things? Do they mostly come to you or do you really got to go out there digging and trying to get them to work with you? I think it's a little of both. And a big priority for us is to ensure that people aren't having to go to SAM.gov and search for some, you know, 75 page solicitation and figure out what we're talking about. We're really trying to break it down and make it easier to digest the types of work that we are looking to do and um, hope that it helps people one, understand what we're trying to accomplish and see how it might connect with what they already have ongoing on the commercial side, potentially, and how that might map to DHS missions. And once you do all make that connection, what is the next step? Do you ever feel uh, as if they're kind of wary of if they're especially if they're, you know, their first time working with you all? Or do you find that they are very accepting and trying to help towards what your mission is? So I think uh, the nice thing about uh, DHS and T is that we have such a variety of ways to partner with us. It is not just, you know, a standard contract. We have a lot of uh, programs that are focused specifically on small businesses, on startups, on citizens. You know, we have prize challenges that we put out that, you know, individual in- innovators could respond and, and win cash prizes So it really is a very wide variety of people that we're looking for. And, you know, through this guide, we're really hoping to engage with new people. Uh, We don't want, you know, the same people all the time. We want to we want people to be aware of what we're doing and get excited and interested in our mission space and really grow our network so that we have the private sector working together with us to address, you know, homeland security mission needs. 
Yeah, it seems as if a lot of the S&T folks, whether it's at DHS or on the uh, space side, really agencies that depend on innovative technologies are looking to expand the dome and the realm of people that they work with. What is the layout right now? Are you all working with a lot of uh, different small businesses or is it a little bit more like the defense side where it's three or four major players in the game? I'd say we have a lot of small businesses. We have a lot of variety. Um, I'm just always interested in getting more variety, you know, changing the face of who we're working with, um, just being as inclusive as possible. Um, And I think, you know, for DHS, we have a lot of, um, you know, dual use possibilities. We have a lot of possibilities for people that could promote their technologies on the commercial market in addition to selling back to the department. So I think we really have a uh, lot of opportunity for innovators of all kinds. We know that innovation is happening in large businesses and we know that it's happening in the startup community. So we really uh, have focused on developing a number of programs that uh, sort of target all those types of audiences. Are there any major technologies that DHS is in use today, whether it comes to border control or cybersecurity, anything like that, that have been formulated from, you know, strictly from a partnership that your office maybe even <laughs> was responsible for creating in the first place? So we have an interesting program, uh, the Silicon Valley Innovation Program. So that really is focused on the startup community. And it's not just on Silicon Valley. We have startups that have been awarded from all over the U.S. and internationally. And we have some great examples of technologies that are in use by Customs and Border Protection, for example, that have grown out of the startup community, taking what they have already developed on the commercial side and getting an understanding and relationship relationships with our end users and seeing how that fits into Homeland Security missions. So it's really giving people access to understand how their technologies could be used by us and doing some tweaking and some small developments to really make it work within the department. Yeah, that tweaking, that was kind of the, the nice segue into what my next question is, which is when you have a specific need that may not be commercially viable, what is your role in reaching out to companies who you think might be well suited to fill that need, uh, but not necessarily for any profit sake or anything, but just specifically for what you all want to use it for? Yeah, I mean, I think it varies. I mean, we have all sorts of entry points, uh, whether it's, you know, the the most basic of research to very advanced, you know, applied um, commercialization. Um, So it really runs the gamut depending on the individual need. But I think the the opportunities that we have as part of our tech transfer and commercialization mission as well really allow us to um, sort of partner in ways outside of contracts through uh, agreements like our Cooperative Research and Development Agreement, uh, CRADAS, to really uh, help with those type of technologies and that type of testing, really to get us hands-on with a technology, like you said, that might only have a, a small market, a limited use case for DHS specifically. As somebody who covers the different industries that work with the government, the Homeland Security, you know, I don't even know what to call the industry sometimes, has seen a significant amount of growth. Has your Rolodex gotten bigger over the years? And what have you seen from the industry side that are, you're seeing more players uh, come coming to you all? Or what, what does it look like? Yeah, I think I'd agree. I think there's um, more interest in, in working with us. And I think, you know, it's also a concerted effort on our side 
side of explaining the missions. I mean, I think people are familiar with some of the DHS missions, but there's so many that, you know, maybe they aren't aware of that really are ripe for commercial solutions and partnerships. And so I think by putting out the document like like a part, the partnership guide, we really are trying to focus on those, you know, that full idea of what the, the missions and the possibilities are. Yeah, I was going to say it doesn't hurt that uh, DHS's list of areas of responsibilities keeps growing. <laughs> oh, exactly. It can be so overwhelming. And I think that's the that's sort of the point and the opportunity here is to really help break it down and make it less, you know, monolithic and a little bit more uh, digestible for people. Well, we've uh, probably got some folks listening that might be interested in finding the guide. What can you tell them about, uh, you know, if somebody owns a small business or has an idea that they want to bring to you all? What's the best route in your mind to go? So the guide is available on our DHS uh, Science and Technology website for download. Um, We also encourage people and if they read the guide, they'll see throughout the uh, document. We really encourage people to reach out to S&T's industry liaison. Um, and we have an email address in the guide um, that really we're, we're interested in hearing from people. We want people to jump on our mailing lists and hear about upcoming opportunities that we have, um, especially once they get an idea for where they might fit and what opportunities they're eligible for. I think they can keep an eye out as uh, as those come up. But, um, you know, encourage people to take a look at the guide learn about our business processes, and then reach out to our industry liaison. And we'd love to have follow-up conversation about technologies that are being developed and then explain or make connections to our program offices. Megan Mayle is the Director of Industry Partnerships in the Homeland Security's Office of Innovation and Collaboration, part of Science and Technology Directorate. Speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview along with a link to the guide at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. 
So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, 
one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper sticker sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate 
And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.